This is an ABC podcast. It's time for Ritz and Cures, and this will be a topic that'll call in Cliff Richards, Chris Froome, the, the champion cyclist. It'll call in your rights and your prerogatives as a, uh, a patient or a client uh, of a, um, a doctor or a specialist, all that within the first 20 minutes, and then we'll be hopping across and looking at the night court and how that's operating. But first, let me introduce uh, our two guests tonight as part of Ritz and Cures, Professor Steve Ellen, a uh, psychiatrist at uh, Peter Mac and a co-author of uh, Mental. Welcome, Steve. Good to see you back. G'day, David. Thanks for having me. And happy birthday, I understand. Yes, it is my birthday. Um, apologies because I've, yeah, I'm in a celebratory mood, oh. but I'm going to try and calm myself down because, you know, I get carried away at the best of times, <laughs> let alone on my birthday. I'd never tell it was your birthday. You, you came in with your usual just uh, suave aplomb. And Katie Miller, who it's the first time I've worked with you, Katie, welcome, a lawyer and uh, a, a uh, an alternative, let's say, to Bill O'Shea. Welcome, Katie. Lovely to be here, David. <laughs> Miss you, Bill. And we lovely to have you too, Katie. Uh, so the t- first topic is this idea of the medical board uh, who is any hearing, any disciplinary um, investigation or tribunal is automatically linked to that doctor's uh, records. So that means if I'm looking to find a, uh, uh, a specialist or I'm looking for a new GP, that I will find out that that person has been investigated despite the fact that they have been exonerated. Is this a um, is this a fair summary of how things currently stand, Steve? Yeah, so pretty much. So what happened was the old medical board, which ran till about 2010, used to link any complaints that were found uh, where doctors were found guilty. And so when you looked up to doctor and you could go to the medical board and look at their registration, there'd be a link telling you anything they'd had against them, whether it was any sort of misconduct or some mistake they'd made or whatnot. Any of the significant reprimands or findings were listed up there. But that's all, not all the investigations. And then APRA, APRA, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority, came in at about 2010 and they've taken and they've they've brought together oh, just dozens and dozens of different groups, nurses, chiropractors, um, you know, so, psychologists, everyone. And so they've taken a while to get everything going together. And there was a, um, a case about a year or two ago that led to an investigation where they said, we've got to get this happening again and we've got to have all of the doctor's registrations linked to their findings. Now, the thing that's happened that's got doctors just up in arms and there's some petitions going around with literally thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of doctors signing is unlike in the old days when they just listed the adverse findings, now they're listing every investigation that's on public record. So if you've gone up before the VCAT or something for, or any of the different boards, the medical board about something and it's a public record, they're linking it. And so the doctors are furious because their argument is that um, the findings that are negative shouldn't be up there because their feeling is that the public will take the attitude of where there's smoke, there's fire, and they'll be potentially discriminated against or thought badly of um, by virtue of the fact of a mere investigation when they haven't done anything wrong. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Is that a fair summary, that idea that if you see that someone has been investigated, you will make the worst conclusions, you'll, you'll draw the sort of more sinister outcome? Is, is that a fair summation, do you think, uh, Katie? I think that when it comes to our society, we're in a real transition period. So um, we have more information that's available to us than we ever have before. Um, and I think we're still learning um, how to understand that information. So I do think that there is um, a legitimate concern at the moment that people um, hear complaint and they immediately think that that means something 
something did happen uh, and that if somebody um, is found by the tribunal, you know, if, if, if the allegations aren't made out at the tribunal, that that must be something about the process and we just didn't have enough proof to, you know, prove it. So I think that as a society, we need to, um, I guess... I guess understand a lot more of this stuff in context um, and understand that, in fact, complaints are gifts. I think that in regulation, we want to be hearing about complaints because if someone is not experiencing the service well, we want to know about that so that we can fix that. But the way that you fix that can sometimes be with very small things like explaining why action was taken and an apology. It doesn't always need to lead to a disciplinary outcome. I'm surprised. Have have APRA come forward to explain their thinking behind linking all uh, investigations, positive or negative, uh, to a doctor's um, name? What is the thinking behind that? Well, you know what? So far, they've not given an explanation and they've been asked. There's been a number – because there's these, serv- these, mm-hmm. these um, uh, petitions going around. Sure. The medical boards uh, – sorry, the um, – the biggest medical insurance companies come out saying they think it's outrageous. The AMAs come out saying they think it's outrageous. But there's yet to be any change. And it's the thinking that appears to be behind it is, the, is this report that came out about a year or so ago by a professor who did a big review following um, a case you might remember where there was an issue about a doctor who was meant to have a chaperone and he didn't and some problems occurred. And, this, and a professor reviewed the whole thing and made a number of findings saying, you know, if, the, if these complaints had been listed, then the patients would have known in advance that these things could have happened. So it was just one of the many recommendations that came out. But what APRA has done that no one quite understands is this extra step of publish, of linking every investigation rather than just the ones where so there no was an adverse outcome. And so we don't have an explanation mm. currently. How does it stand in, in the legal profession if there has been an investigation against a, a lawyer or a legal practitioner? Okay. So, um, so all the lawyers um, in Victoria are, and um, I think there's something similar in Tasmania, yep. um, we're all listed on a register. So you can basically go to the register, you can look up a lawyer by their name, you can look it up by um, their suburb, um, and you can see that, yes, they are in fact registered to be doing this lawyering thing. Um, now, where there are findings against a lawyer and, and particularly reprimands, um, they will be published on the register. Um I don't believe that the register itself contains links to documents, but all of VCAT's decisions, um, both decisions where finding adverse findings are made, but also um, where they find that there was nothing wrong, all of those are available on the internet anyway. And I've got to say, Steve, when I am talking to friends about mm-hmm. health practitioners, I always say to them, if you're going to someone new, Google them. Mm. Yeah. You know, do your due diligence. We do have access to this information. So there's also um, an element of, okay, well, it may not be on the register, but we can all just go to Osley and search VCAT decisions for certain names. So even a VCAT uh, inquiry that uh, came in favour of, uh, of the lawyer, that's, the, that's also sitting there on the great, uh, on the great uh, web it, it is, but this is where context becomes really important. Yeah. So we have over 19,000 registered lawyers in Victoria. Um, of those, um, about 300 um, will find themselves in VCAT each year. And of those 300, about two-thirds are really what we would understand as consumer disputes. So disputes about costs, disputes about you know how I was treated right. as a consumer. There's really only about 80 to 100 who end up having disciplinary um findings made. Um, A lot of the complaints that are made to the Legal Services Commission are actually dealt with at a much earlier stage and without having um, published decisions. Um, And and that's just, I think, good complaint handling processes. If you can resolve a complaint early um, to the complainant's satisfaction, you do that without needing the big infrastructure of VCAT in a hearing. 
Steve, you may not have the numbers to hand, but those sorts of figures, you know, the, in fact, you know, what Katie has just said, it's, it's only a very small uh, percentage of, uh, of sort of adverse findings. Is it a, a similar sort of profile in, uh, in medicine? I don't have the numbers to hand, mm. but back in the day when they were regularly came out prior to APRA in 2010, it was that sort of ballpark. Yeah. You know, there's about 25,000 doctors in Victoria and it was that sort of um, ballpark again. You know, interestingly, you know, I looked up the legal register and of course uh, they, they don't link it on their register. They say you can come into the office during working hours and have a look free of charge, but you would have to search. And the big difference is lots of people will search up a website to see if their clinician is there and mm-hmm. that they're registered and what their specialties are and what they're entitled to do and not do. But I don't think many people ever, even if they search the searches that will include VCAT and stuff, people aren't going to go and read those. So that's the difference. What the APRA is doing is advertising stuff that I don't think nine out of ten people would find. But I must admit, you know, I'm a little bit – I still haven't signed the petition, you know, and I'm genuinely a little bit vexed because I don't, I don't quite know what's fair. And, you know, I've, and it hasn't it, – you know, those two cases you mentioned really struck me. I sat there thinking about this last night. In particular, as I was thinking about this discussion tonight. Before you go there, this is uh, – I oh, should sorry. just re- just remind people that uh, you're with um, David Astle on Evenings. You're listening to Professor Steve Allen, who's about to launch into the other sort of parallel cases uh, away from the medicine medical profession, and Katie Miller, who's a lawyer, who's uh, all part of the Ritz and Cures package uh, that's uh, happening tonight. So you're going to – this idea, before you cross over to the other two cases, what you're talking about is the difference between passive information and active information. So it really only takes one mouse click for, for me through APRA to find all the, the sort of good news and bad news, whether I can interpret that or not, that's attached to a particular clinician, versus going into the, uh, you know, making an appointment uh, with a body to go in and find out what... Um, you know, what record is, is attached to that uh, particular practitioner. So that is that is almost due diligence that most people won't operate or do. What's happening in these other areas that uh, possibly APRA could, uh, could learn from? Well, this is what got me thinking because, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about this last night and then I saw the article on the news about Sir Keith Richard who's just sued successfully the BBC, who um, made had a very big story, oh, it's about a year ago now, I think maybe more, about how his house was being raided by the police over allegations that he'd had a sexual relationship with a 16-year-old, I think was the details. Now, it was all over the news. BBC did big stories. They'd been tipped off to the search. They had it all over their news. And a, a couple of weeks later, the whole case was dropped and it turned out there was apparently no basis to it. And so he sued on the basis that this was just too much um, coverage for what had actually happened and he's been successful and then the other one that struck me of course is as we've talked about on this show I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Tour de France mm-hmm. and I've seen Chris Froome who's a um, you know one of the favourites for the race and he had an investigation as to whether he'd inappropriately used salbutamol a year or so ago and the investigation was leaked to the press. Now, even though he had a um, finding that he was not guilty, it was leaked to the press. And now, through the whole race, he's being spat upon and hit. And it's an example of how people are misusing information and misinterpreting information that really, you would argue, they probably... It's a post-truth world, Steve. It's a post-truth world. And as you say, the smoke's as good as the fire. And that is the problem with the, with the whole sort of ARPA situation, that if there's a suspicion of someone being inappropriate or being uh, sort of... Um, uh, malfeasance, that's enough for a lot of people and that's, mm. the, that's the trouble. Well, I think this is where regulators also, though, have a role to play in educating people about 
um, what is the function of a good regulator. And I said before that, you know, complaints are gifts. Complaints, um, we, we should be, as professionals, we should be encouraging people to tell us when something um when, when they haven't experienced something the way that they expected to. Um, it's then about what do we do with that information. And I think that there is a role for um, informing people and educating people that investigations are a process which, by definition, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So it's that idea that, look, there's something here that doesn't feel quite right. Let's actually investigate. Let's look into it. Um, and the reason that we talk about outcomes and findings and determinations is because it's only at that point after completing an investigation that you can really know what truth is. And I think that where people's concerns are is that we are conflating uh, the sort of the ultimate finding with things that we're just learning about through the process. So I think as a community, we need to sort of hold our curiosity and suspicion and wait until findings have been made before we start condemning people. And Steve, this is resonated by a texter who's just got in touch on 0437 774 774. I'd be keen to, to garner your response to this. This is the question. What is the difference between this listing of investigations and hearing of complaints against doctors to the court system when allegations are tested in public, regardless of reputation of the exonerated person? Is this feeding into that idea of the doctor God image of doctors trying to protect themselves is what the texture has put. What do you think of that, Steve? This is where I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's confusing for me too. I'm mm. not sure. You know, when the, I read all the petitions, initially I thought, is this just us as a group? expecting too much protection. These are already public findings. You can, as Katie says, you can go and search things like VCAT and all this and find these, yep. find out these things. Um, and so are we just being oversensitive? Now, on the other hand, I've just seen so many vexatious complaints over the years, many that I've just seen dismissed out of hand. And whereas if people read about them, they will affect the doctor's livelihood, their business, their reputation. So I'm really not sure. Um, I'm really not sure the answer to this. Katie. So this is something that we're grappling with in um, criminal law as well, except we're starting at the other end of the spectrum. So I think traditionally... Um, disciplinary complaints about, you know, doctors and nurses and lawyers um, have started very private and we've been moving towards more transparency. Um, in criminal law, we're experiencing the opposite, which is that we have always had um, criminal matters heard in public court. And what we're finding as more people have access to the internet and as, as information becomes sort of, you know, permanent, uh, we're looking at when are the circumstances that we actually shouldn't be hearing about these things um, in, in public. And that's, you know, the circumstance of Cliff Richards and an investigation that sort of is still ongoing and charges might be dropped. Um, and that's why we've got a really live debate at the moment about when should suppression orders be issued. And I know that that's a very sensitive topic in Victoria, but it is because of this challenge of the way that we traditionally do things in public, in the open, um, is really difficult to navigate in a world where everyone's connected to the internet um, and where once the information is on the internet, it's incredibly difficult to remove. Steve. Yeah, look, I think it's... I sort of like the point Katie made earlier. I think as a society, we need to get more sophisticated in how we address these things. You know, 20 years ago, we only heard about... They had to go through all these filters before we heard them. Journalistic standards were much higher. You, you know, to get into the newspaper, it had to be a really big deal. Whereas now, with all social media and the various news outlets we have, we're getting them much earlier, but we're still treating them like they're guilty findings. And we have to get more sophisticated as a community, more mature in how we understand allegations and we ha how we... Withhold, how we uphold the basic principle that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. 
It's uh, about 28 past 8 o'clock here with David Astle uh, as part of the Ritz and Cures. We're talking about this idea that uh, if the medical board uh, has any sort of investigation, uh, investigating a complaint, determining whether there's any grounds for uh, further action, any uh, uh, sort of tremor on the wire is automatically attached to that clinician's name. Whether that's how it should be or whether that needs modifying is the question that's up for debate. I'm curious to know, though, would not uh, would not the patient or pr- prospective patient, uh, Steve, be entitled to as much information as possible about a prospective clinician? I, I mean, is, is this all part of the age of information and the more information is the more entitlement and prerogative that uh, is afforded to the prospective patient? Look, I, I partly think you're right. And the reason I think I think that is because once we get used to this idea of all of this information being out there, I think that we will get more sophisticated as a group and we'll, we'll move into that space. But I'm concerned about the process of getting from A to B because right now an allegation mud sticks and right now it's not a great place to be in. But I think once we do open the doors entirely, then the public will get used to it because they'll realise everyone in the world has some sort of complaint against them at some time, says something that other people disagree with or does something that people don't like. Are we going to get smarter at filtering this information, you think, Katie? I think what I would encourage everyone to be doing is rather than being smarter about filtering, actually be smarter about hearing these complaints. Make sure that you're the first person that knows that there's a complaint about you. And that's about doctors, lawyers, um, anyone who's worried about these complaints. Make sure you've got really good complaint handling processes because if you can resolve it with your patient or client, they will not need to go to the regulator. It will not end up in VCAT and it will not end up anywhere near the internet. That's very true. Can I give one more just in case people do? Only because it's your birthday. Thank you. Just in case people do want to um, get involved in this debate and get onto the um, petition, it's on change.org and you can just, you can look it up under, um, quite easily under APRA or, you know, doctors complaints processes. It comes up very easily. I googled it, no problem and found it and you can sign the petition if you're uh, passionate about the topic. What did you get for your birthday? So far, I have two cakes out there and some <laughs> chocolates. I've eaten the chocolates, but the cakes oh, are still with me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if you want some what, during what the song break, <laughs> you're welcome. This is the Ritz and Hewers podcast. If you want cash, you go to an ATM. If you want medicine, you go to an all-night chemist. If you want justice, well, you're going to have to wait till day, aren't you? Well, at least that was the case about 18 months ago, but uh, there's a night court. And apparently, it's like the day court, but it's at night. But I don't think it's as simple as that. To really unravel, unpack, and uh, decipher what is the night court and how it's been operating, the the strengths and the weaknesses of the system to date, and how it might be modified with an eye to being rolled out into other states, uh, we are joined now by Kate Bundrock, who is a program manager and summary cri- at Summary Crime for Victoria Legal Aid, and she'll be looking at the Night Court, joining myself, David Astle, and Professor Steve Ellen, and uh, lawyer Katie Miller. Welcome, Kate Bundrock. Thanks, Kate and Katie. That's We'll just keep to that, even though sometimes <laughs> you probably answer to both. But uh, Kate will make it clearer versus Katie. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, night Court versus Day. I mean, is it uh, as simple as just the time, of, um, uh, the time on the clock, or there's a, a whole lot more? What's the kind of key difference between what goes on? the night court and what you can expect uh, in the sort of customary version that we know. Sure. It's not exactly the same because night court or the after hours and weekend component of what the court is now calling the bail and remand court is only for 
people who the police have arrested and they don't want to let them out on bail, so they bring them to court to say to the magistrate, can we keep this person in custody? So it's a remand court only. So it makes it much more of a sort of processing shoot, you know, just uh, getting uh, having a, a case assessed and having a piece of paper signed versus much more of assiduous investigation into a person or the, or the alleged offence? Uh, it's not generally an investigation into the offence, but it's a question of bail. Um, but it is the case that if somebody is charged with something and they decide to plead guilty to it, that can also happen at night court. Am I right in, in thinking that it is the uh, first night court of its kind or first night court in Australia? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think it's the only one operating in the way that it is in Australia. I've been told, I wasn't practising then, that there was a night court in Paran in the 1980s. In Um, Paran? Apparently. Well, that's always been a nefarious strip, let's face it. (laughs) Wait a second, there was a TV show, Night Court. I don't quite remember it, but I vaguely remember there was some TV show and it was all about, you know, the various strange characters who fronted up to Night Court. It was a US um, sitcom. Yeah, there was. Uh, so I never saw it, but the, during the time we were doing the project at Legal Aid to set up Night Court, there was a lot of YouTube playing of Night Court theme songs. <laughs> Have you gone along, uh, Katie, and to see this whole thing in action? Uh, I haven't, actually, and that's because when it first started up, um, there were, like, all these questions about, mm-hmm. you know, is it going to be like Day Court? So um, Day Court, anyone can just wander in off the street, go through security, and they can just go and start watching um, hearings. And that was one of the early questions was, well, if it's happening at night, can I just sort of wander in off the street and have a look at it? And the answer is, as I understand it, Kate, that yes, yes, you can. Okay, it'd be great ringside seating. And how have you been involved? I understand that uh, it's been magistrates for the first sort of um, the beta test, so to speak, or the sort of Mm. first phase of operation. And now it's only in the last month or so that lawyers are part of the the uh, the process. How is it that that transition has occurred? That's right. So the night court started operating uh, early last year, um, and it was a magistrate sitting, but there were no um, police prosecutors and there were no lawyers available. Uh, Sometimes some private lawyers would come in, I should say. There were no duty lawyers uh, Mm -hmm. and there were no other services that you would see at court during the day. Um, And so this has been a a process whereby um, on the 30th of April, so almost three months ago, um, Victoria Legal Aid duty lawyers started providing a service. Police prosecutors were there. There's what we call KISP, which is the Court Integrated Service Program, so that can provide support services for people uh, and corrections who can do assessments to see if someone's suitable for a corrections order have all been in place. You know, it's, uh, you know, I did a, you know, I, I do enormous preparation for this show, as you know, yeah. and I did yeah. a quick you Google. You said a long, uh, long yeah. yard of ale. So I did a quick Google, and, uh, you know, when it first came in, all of the press for the first three months was negative. The police association came out saying this is a waste of money, um, we're not going to use it, um, you know, there's all these people have to be there at night and it's just a, a waste of resources. Of course, it came in after a very... Um, prominent case of someone who'd been put out on bail and then who later committed some crimes and was all over the papers and various others, government, various people said it was a waste of money um, other than the Labor government I think at the time that brought it in. That doesn't sound like that's transpired. It sounds like it's been pretty successful and been expanded. Yes, so it was it was done pretty quickly and then there was a review of Victoria's bail laws and it was a recommendation made that a bail and remand court be introduced that would operate from uh, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. seven days a week so that magistrates are available to deal with bail matters. Um, since the services have been there, I think that the court 
has really been then able to deal with things productively. So it's able to make um, good decisions about whether there's bail should be granted or whether someone can plead guilty because they've got all of the services there. And we have seen in the not quite three months um, that the numbers of people coming through night court has gone up a lot. So I think that's indicating that there's a lot of Victoria Police members now who think that it is a good thing to bring their um, the person they've arrested in. Katie. So what sort of numbers are coming through night court? So in the first two months, so that's from the 30th of April to the 30th of June. Last year? This year. Oh, this year, So right. since, the mm-hmm. since the services have been, been in, mm-hmm. um, we, Victoria Legal Aid, mm-hmm. saw 403 clients during that period. But I have seen some information recently that suggests that uh, it's possible that numbers of clients through just in July alone will be around 400. So the numbers have gone up a lot. So what's the benefit for the public? Does this mean you can get your bail hearing quicker? You don't, so if you get arrested on, say, a Friday, you don't sit around all weekend and wait to a, you know, in, in a jail somewhere, you can get it through sooner. Is that the whole idea, just move it through quicker? Yes. So I think the benefit is that those decisions can be made more quickly and The summary crime system in Victoria uh, is very high volume. It deals with a lot of matters and is under a fair bit of pressure. And this is a way that some of that can be um, dealt with and moved through. And also, you know, keeping people in custody can is expensive and can create um, issues so that if their matters can be finalised or decisions can be made, um, it's helping everything flow through. I imagine that uh, that is the straw that no one wants to draw, that idea of working through the hours of, you know, getting up at midnight and sort of clocking off at, uh, at dawn. I mean, how, how is the staff, how are the lawyers and, and magistrates determined to, uh, to be there operating the night court? So that they don't have to work those hours. So it, it's, it's an evening shift. Okay. Um, you will be finished. Generally, we're hoping that our lawyers are finished by 10. So we have had all a right. few nights when they're finished by 11 but it's not going all night okay it's not right. going it's all not night like long. a cab service or something like that you know? no <laughs> uh, i think there would be i think that would setting that up would be very difficult <laughs> I, I think so i think it'd be quite sort of appealing wages to make it work yes. um so the, the what about if someone doesn't wish to go through night court what if they wish to t- you know sort of go through you know more orthodox channels well it's a remand court so they um, they have to come before someone has to make a decision about them being granted bail or not. And I would, I, I can't speak of everyone who's charged by the police, obviously, but I would imagine that when you've been through that process and you don't know what's happening, there's a lot of uncertainty. You could be in custody for the first time. Uh, you feel much better going through the process that sort of explains and determines where you should be going. It's 16 to 9 o'clock. You're with David Astle here on Evenings on ABC Victoria and ABC Tasmania. This is part of the Ritz and Cures segment that we do every Tuesday night. Uh, And uh, we've just been hearing from Kate Bundrock, who is with Victoria Legal Aid. She's the Program Manager for Summary Crime. And uh, also Katie Miller, a lawyer, and Professor Steve Ellen in in uh, in the panel. Uh, Kate, the um, what sort of modifications um, would you humbly suggest need to be implemented to make the night court more efficient that's or more good, effective? That's a good question. Um, the one of the issues that we have at in any court really is mm-hmm. just dealing with the volume, um, and an issue that we have particularly at night is just that 
at the end of the shift, we always seem to be scrambling to do as much as we possibly can before um, the court stops sitting and particularly before the services become unavailable. So I think there's probably a little bit of work to be done there about making sure um, that all the timing is aligning and things like that. Um, and, you know, there's always something to be said for having more lawyers there. <laughs> Well, it's true. Yeah, more representation, more more fairness, and you know, more cases can be fairly he- heard. Uh, well, you both put your hands up at the same time. Let's go. Let's go with a lawyer, Katie. <laughs> I mean, I just um, you know, I think that numbers can be um, really useful here. And I mean, Kate, you've been talking about how the magistrates' court is very much a volume jurisdiction, um, and we've heard that you know, four hundred clients are going to be coming through uh, night court. You know this month. Mm. Um, I mean, just in terms of context, you know, I mean, in terms of the day court of the Magistrates Court, do you have any sense of, you know, how many matters that hears each year in the summary crime jurisdiction or even just, you know, the legal aid lawyer who's, um, you know, at night court, you know, how many people are they seeing in their evening shift? Yes. So, look, night court is a really interesting new thing that we're doing, but it's it's operating at Melbourne. Uh, the catchment is sort of metro Melbourne, and we do need to say that it's it's just one small court and there's courts operating throughout Victoria. So it's actually a small proportion. Last financial year, so the financial year that just finished on the 30th of June, Victoria Legal Aid provided around about... Wrote this down somewhere. It's around about sixty thousand duty lawyer services for summary crime matters. So a huge amount of duty lawyer services. So night court is a small proportion. Um, and in terms of like average numbers of clients that we're seeing, I think for the first two months we've been averaging about six to seven clients a night on average. But certainly we've had some busy nights, and they do seem to be getting busier. So last Friday the lawyers saw seventeen people just in that after hours. Given that we are going to Tasmania tonight, is it uh, would there be cause uh, by dint of volume of of offences or of after hour uh, sort of processing? Uh, is there call for it in Tasmania or in other states? Would you would you know? I don't know. I don't mm. know. No, no. It's, look, it's a kind of question without notice. But I'm interested to know. I mean, I'd imagine this is very much a uh, a kind of landmark experiment for other states. Uh, if this is the first state model. Um, uh, do you know if there's any murmurs of this sort of thing happening elsewhere? I don't know. And I think that um, there are different ways that these things are approached in other states. I think in WA there's certainly a service that's available, say, to go to the police stations after hours. I see. Um, I believe in New South Wales as well. Uh, I think even in Victoria, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, has lawyers available for clients who are taken into custody after hours. So there's always been different sorts of after-hours services, um, and I actually don't know yeah, in look, terms of whether there are other courts. Very much a drawing board. Um, yes, and, and I think that this is going to be one of those. Um, I mean, this is federalism in action. A mm. state tries a new way of tackling um, an existing challenge. And I think around um, the country, uh, lawyers and courts are looking at how do we use our resources um, better. We can't just keep building new court um, houses. So I think that this is um, an experiment that around the country, lawyers and courts will be looking at with great interest. Mm. The thing I actually, a couple of years ago, I had to spend a couple of days in the court, watching what went on. Was this on your birthday again? No, it wasn't on my birthday. It was when I was arrested. No, it was actually, um, it was to do with providing support for lawyers. And so Mm -hmm. they asked me to go along and sit in for a few days and watch what happened and see what it was like and see what we needed to do. And the thing that totally amazed me is it was really like an emergency department. 
So people imagine you go to the emergency department and a doctor sees you and sorts you out and off you go. The reality is it's a whole lot of social work and occupational therapy and nutritionists and the nurses are doing it. There's all of these groups that come together. And when I went and sat in the courts, it was exactly the same. There was this huge pile of cases, around 30 cases, and one lawyer after another would come and take the one from the top. They'd sit with the client, they'd take a history just like we did in the emergency department, and there'd often be social work issues, all sorts of other um, financial Sounds issues. Like speed dating. Well, it was just amazing the breadth of the work. It wasn't what I imagined. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't someone going in there and doing law and then, you know, interpreting a law, going in and saying to the judge. It was this whole range of activities. And, you know, of course, emergency departments in my day used to be essentially nine to five. And after hours, it was a skeleton staff, just mm-hmm. interns. You'd be crazy to go. Whereas now it's um, you know, the professors are on at night even. Um, is it, do you think night court will get like this too and it'll gradually expand and in the same way um, healthcare has in emergency departments over the last 20 years? I think eventually, yes, definitely. I don't think this is going to happen immediately in Victoria. Um, so we might see the recommendation to implement the bail and remand court recommended too for Victoria and I think that will probably happen uh, relatively quickly. There's There's... Real challenges, obviously, about changing the hours that people work and Victoria Legal Aid is a big law practice and particularly a big criminal law practice. I think there's going to be real challenges for smaller criminal law firms to be able to provide lawyers. Um, and I think that it's it's a real cultural shift, I guess, for the profession. But I think ultimately, yes, and I think there is a lot of, as Katie said, there's a lot of unused uh, time in the day when the courthouses are empty. So I think ultimately, yes. What what agitated its um, its genesis? Was it from the the uh, police uh, services, or was it from the legal profession, or was it from elsewhere, from from state government? Uh, well, when it was initially set up, it was a response to um, an incident. But but now in its current um, Incarnation as the Bail and Remand Court, that was a recommendation of the Coghlan Review into to bail law. Steve? You know, I was just going to pick up on that point you made about the sort of the infrastructure that we have sitting there that's dormant at night. This has become a real issue in hospitals too. Mm. You know, MRI machines, machines CAT yeah. scanners, all the equipment's worth mm. these days millions. And I've heard hardware, this, yeah. Yeah, and I've heard the CEO saying it's in the future, it's just not going to be viable to have it dormant at night and we're going to have to all change to a 24-hour model because we've got all this incredibly expensive equipment sitting dormant. I imagine it's not quite the same in courts, though, because apart from the buildings, it's really it's people, isn't it? Yes, it's it's both. Uh, the buildings are actually pretty... They're, they're pretty used to capacity, so that's one issue. Um, but that's right. We don't have probably so much... It's people like Kate. Equipment. That we're talking about. Kate's the MRI, FRMI mm. scanner here. I mean, how have you coped with uh, shift work? It's not something that you'd be you know, accustomed to, I wouldn't think. No. So I, I, I should uh, confess that I'm not doing it regularly. I have done a couple of shifts um, and it was good, actually. I enjoyed it. I think there's a real, um, one of the major things for us in setting up this service was making sure that we were looking after the well-being of our staff. Um, and I think that the risk that we face and that we continue to face is that our work hours could all just expand because mm-hmm. there are now people working um, until 10 o'clock every day and on the weekends. So it was very um, important for me, I thought, as I was trailing it out to, to think about how the staff who were doing it regularly would experience it, to be very clear with myself that I couldn't work in the morning, that my shift wasn't started and it wasn't work time. And that's hard. Um, the type of work that we do is 
um, very interesting. It's, you know, people do this work because they're passionate about the work and the fairness and they're committed to their clients. Um, and it's hard not to just continually do it. But obviously the well-being of lawyers is, is a, um, a big issue that the whole profession has to grapple with and particularly I think for people working in criminal law. So it's about just trying to be clear that that's not your work time and that sort of shift um, is, a, is quite challenging, I think. Katie is nodding emphatically here, that idea, the emotional toll. It's, uh, it, it really is quite a heavy one for, for a lawyer involved in that sort of area at the coalface. Yeah, and look, I think that um, for lawyers, you know, we, we've got well-being issues. I think we've talked on this program before mm-hmm. about, you know, the fact that both lawyers and doctors, um, you know, have traditionally not dealt with well-being in, in a really good way. And part of it has been that um, we are so committed to our clients and to the work that we do that we will just work around the clock if you let us to. Um, I think that night court's really an interesting development because in some ways it's starting to change the structures and it means that even if we wanted to, we may not be able to work all the time. Um, and I think that it's forcing some very interesting conversations um, amongst lawyers about, well, um, what does work-life balance looks like? What is a reasonable amount of work? And if you are going to be working at night, what changes do you need to make to your life at other times of the day so that you're still getting getting time off? Are you going to share those findings? Just in, I'm thinking of you know broadcasters, for example, who work at night. You know, Maybe they could learn a little <laughs> bit about uh, what you discovered about ensuring there's enough me time in the day. Well, and I think this is where it's so interesting because shift work has always been with us. And um, the only thing that's really new is that we're seeing it much more in the profession. So, and, you know, and this is where I think, you know, I mean, we haven't even touched on like some of the health stuff about shift work. So, I mean, I think, I think that um, we're at a really interesting point um, in our society where we are absolutely becoming a 24-7 society and it does have really Mm. tricky issues for the people who work and live in that society. Mm. It's been a pleasure, as always, to look at uh, matters of, uh, of law and medicine as part of the Ritz and Cures. I thank our special guest tonight, uh, Kate Bundrock, who is a program manager with uh, Victoria Legal Aid in Summary Crime. Uh, Katie Miller, who's uh, been um, a wonderful addition to the panel. It's the first time we've worked together. It's lovely to meet you, Katie. Uh, and Professor Steve Ellen, happy birthday, uh, big fellow. It's, uh, and congratulations on your co-authorship of Mental, 